0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Tennis IQ podcast. I'm Brian Lomax.
1: And I'm Josh Berger. Today we are interviewing William Beauregard. William is entering his fourth season as head coach of the men's and women's tennis teams at Sacred Heart University, Division I university located in Fairfield, Connecticut. Prior to Sacred Heart, William was a highly successful professional player on the ITF and ATP tours and collegiate player at Bates College. William played in the ITF and ATP tours for 13 years and reached the career high ATP singles ranking of 1,002 and doubles ranking of 900. He was a five time All American selection at Bates College and won the 2006 NCAA Division III singles championship. Now, some of our listeners may or may not know this, but I worked for the past two years as the assistant men's and women's tennis coach at Sacred Heart under William and really learned a tremendous amount about the sport of tennis. Um, and coaching tennis, as well as managing and coaching a uh, competitive collegiate tennis program. Um, so really learned a lot from him, and I, I really view him as a mentor. So this is a uh, conversation I've been looking forward to for, for a long time. Um, we talk about his background as a tennis player, both as a junior, as a co- collegiate player, as well as a pro, and that transition that he made to college coaching. And then we also will talk about his coaching philosophy and style. Um, so Brian, uh, I know we, we talked a little bit, um, off air a little bit about this and really, um, and this is, will be one of the themes that comes up, but what it means to be competitive and then, uh, you sort of, um, being a great competitor and how those, how those differ.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, that's something that we want the listeners to, to really tune in as they listen to our, our conversation, um, with William and, um, and you will kind of touch on this afterwards, but, uh, that's a really important distinction, knowing having a good definition of being competitive and, and knowing how to be a good competitor. And, uh, for many players, those two things are not in agreement. Right. So, um, yeah, with that, let's listen into our uh, our interview with William Beauregard.
1: And today we have a very special guest. We have William Beauregard joining us. Thank you for joining us, William.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys.
1: And this is uh, this is a, a special episode for me because uh, William and I have worked together um, at Sacred Heart for the past two years. Um, I worked as the assistant men's and women's coach there, and he has been uh, the head coach for the, the last two years. Um, and I, I think in this episode, we'll talk about uh, Williams' background as a junior player, college player, as well as a professional player, um, as well as his his coaching background and coaching philosophy. Um, so let's let's just get right into it. um so can you can you tell us a little bit about your your background and your journey um, as a tennis player? Sure. Uh,
2: I started when I was five. It's been in our family for many generations at a recreational level. I grew up in Redding, Connecticut, and, uh, you know, my mother just brought me to our elementary school courts to start, and, you know, kind of with a basket of balls and just an old racket, and there was a hitting wall there, too, so I actually found that to be incredibly fun um, to hit against the wall, so uh, once she discovered that, she probably was really happy because, uh, you know, she didn't have to, like, chase a lot of balls around the court, so I was just kind of trying to hit the ball into the wall repetitively. uh, And I just got a lot of fun out of that. So we would do that a lot and I would go home and hit against the garage door and things like that. So I was definitely that kid who, you know, enjoyed that interaction of the ball and the racket and the wall and just trying to like control it and things like that. I don't know. So um, or even just throwing the ball against the wall and catching it. So to me, that was always just an interesting fun thing to do. By the time I reached seven, um, you know, my mom had kind of reached her limit in terms of, you know, she just realized that I needed proper coaching and uh, that I really did like the sport a lot. And that I was kind of decently good at it for a seven year old. So she was like, okay, let's, you know, let's move this up a notch and get him lessons. So she took me over to the four seasons racquet club and Wilton and Stanley Matthews is the head coach there At that time, um, he was a three-time Wimbledon junior champion in the 60s. He's from England and kind of very traditional game, um, stroked, you know, good volleys, good slice, one-handed backhand, things like that. So very good serve, you know, all that kind of very good technique and foundation. So he gave that to me um, and I trained with him for 10 years from, you know, seven to, you know Um, I kind of moved over to the tennis club at Trumbull where Brian Barker was because they had a very high performance um, group there. And I kind of reached my – four seasons worked for me when I was younger because they had 18-year-olds and I was, you know, 12 playing with the 18-year-olds. And, you know, so that was still competitive. But once I got to 16, I was so much better than everybody at the club at that point. I was hitting with the men's team – And beating them, you know, so there was really one guy there, Jeff Landau, who could kind of push me. And other than that, I was basically just beating everybody at that point. So we found out that um, Brian had a good group of people. He had a lot of, you know, Todd Paul, Darcy Robertson, Alex Jacobs, um, James Blake, obviously. So there were some really like top players, even though James wasn't um, there all that much because he was already at Harvard. But he would come home you know, during certain periods of the year and we'd get to play with them and stuff. So that was great. And, you know, obviously James was number one in college at, you know, I think by his sophomore year, he was already number one D one guy, you know, and, and then he left Harvard early to go on the tour and became four in the world. So um, obviously it was a very high performance like place. So we ended up kind of moving from four seasons and going over, spending a little bit more time over at uh, tennis club with Trumbull, Bryant, and everybody. And then, Recruiting happened, so college, D1 offers, all kinds of schools. Um, ended up kind of, for personal reasons, going to a Division three school. I was a pre-med student uh, at the time, so I wasn't really thinking pros. I was just more thinking, we're going to go to med school, um, and I was using my tennis to help me get into kind of the best academic school I could possibly get into, um, and so uh, I also was nervous about the course load because everybody talks about pre-med being very difficult in terms of the amount of hours that are required and the material subject matter is tough. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with labs and there's a lot of credits and it's, it's just a lot of work. So I was kind of nervous about that and division one and pre-med can it be done? Um, and so I decided to go division three, little less on the, uh, athletics side of things. Like we didn't have a strength and conditioning program. Um, you know, whereas, Uh, at uh, division one you do um slightly shorter season maybe some less you know less travel less matches so it just for me made sense personally for myself um even though i was coming in as a big fish in a smaller pond i was number one right away all four years at Bates, i played number one and then um you which was nice. I mean, I I was a five-time All-American. I ended up winning the national championship in my senior year, which was like two weeks or a week before I graduated. So it was kind of an amazing experience to graduate like under those terms. But um, it wasn't until really my junior year that I thought about maybe going pro and putting off medical school and things like that. Um, And then when I made it to the finals of the nationals, my junior year really became something I wanted to do, which was like, you know, win the, win the nationals and then try to go pro Paul Gasson, who was my coach at the time, he was the hitting partner for Ivan Lendl who, when he was number one in the world. So he had world-class experience and knowledge through that and was giving me a lot of those lessons. Um, and so that really helped me take my game to another level. And he believed that I could uh, make it to the tour and be into the top hundred Um, And we had Bud Schultz, who's a Bates alum, who made it to the top 30 in the world. Uh, He was the coach of the Boston Lobsters at the time and invited me to come down to, you know, Boston and uh, see my game. Jan Michael Gamble was part of that team at that time. And so later, I ended up moving out to L.A. to work with Jan Mike and his family um, and Coco Vengaway. And, you know, that was just that was years later. But anyway, a little little moment of connection there uh, when I was 22 And, um, so then the kind of decision was, we'll put med school off. We'll go try the tour. I was number one in the country and, um, you know, let's see. Uh, and it ultimately was an amazing experience. I just didn't have the financial resources to really put the team together and have that professional training environment that is really required now at this time. Like nobody, should be going on the tour who doesn't have a proper professional training environment, um, you know, with good hitting partners and good coaches and and all that stuff uh, because there's too many players in the world now who do have that and you're trying to compete against them. Um, even if you're the greatest athlete in the world, it's still uh, really, really tough um, if you don't have kind of those resources. So that was kind of, what what I discovered as we went through, I had a lot of people believe in me um, because I was a gifted athlete and, and and I was driven and I was passionate and I loved the sport and all that. Um, and I'd had some great coaching, but I just didn't have the the kind of support that I really ultimately needed to go all the way with it. Um but I did manage to have a great run and and go to twenty-two countries and played, you know, hundreds of matches uh, at that pro level and futures challengers. Uh, ATP two fifties and even one master series in Montreal, which was incredible. Um, and so it was just a great run by the time I got to 30, I kind of realized like, okay, I'm not going to get the big support financially that I need. So I can't really put that team together properly. And so let's just, let's just call it, call it a day. It's been a good, good run. And I met a lot of great people and had some great experiences that I'll never forget. But time to go to the next step in life. And I thought that was wall street. So I was kind of, it was college or college tennis uh, coaching or wall street. So I went to Fairfield U because I'm from Connecticut. And so I decided to go there and coach Bricker who's still the coach there said, Oh, you know, um, I'll take you on as assistant, but I'll pay you this much. And I was like, well, I can't afford to live off that much. So at this, at 30 years old, that's not really um, you know, something that I can do. And so I basically um, was looking more towards Wall Street and and a financial job. And then I got an offer to work at an investment firm. And the Monday, I was supposed to hand the form to work for this guy on Monday. And then that weekend, I got a call from Sacred Heart asking if I wanted to come in to interview for the head men's and women's position. And I basically got the job on the spot. And, um, And I took it because it was a great, it was a very special opportunity to be head coach, D1 men and women having not had coaching experience, like collegiate coaching experience prior. So most of the time you do have to become an assistant, you know, almost like volunteer, then assist, then head, you know, um, and just because of all my tour experience and I was coaching along the side at country clubs and other clubs, um, plus I had coached ATP and WTA players, uh, all of that added up to them feeling comfortable that I would be able to, and I had an undergraduate degree from a respectable place. So I think they understood that I would be able to handle the administrative um, organizational management kind of roles and responsibilities that come along with the job beyond just being able to develop players and recruit players um, and build the program. So that's kind of the story. um, And yeah, so it's, it's been a good ride.
1: (laughs) Awesome. No, I, I knew, I knew much of that, much of that story, um, just from you know our relationship, but, uh, good, good to hear. I mean, certainly certain aspects of it, um, were new to me. I'm sure our, our listeners will will find it very interesting as well. One, one question that I had, and I, I, I know we want to, um, talk as well about, um, life on the tour. Um, but before that, during, during your college days, and I know you won, you won the 2006, uh, division three singles championship. Um, but, Can you tell us a little bit about that that sticky note? I know you had a sticky note on your college laptop and sort of what that said, (laughs) how it kept you focused.
2: Yeah, so my coach did a great thing. He he told me to write my goals down um, in my first year, first first week, basically. Um, And I decided to tape that onto my laptop. He just told me to put it somewhere where I'd see it. And so for me, that was my laptop. So I taped this three by five index card that says, what does it take to win a national title and get into medical school? So, you know, that was always the goal from when he recruited me was I want, I want, he said, I want to have a national championship team. I really want to get to that level with the team. Um, and any coach can understand that they, they want to win. They want to win titles. It feels great to have a winning team. Versus a losing team feels better to win than lose for sure. So he just wanted to kind of go to that next level. And I was number one in new England. So I was one of the top prospects out there and he was really excited about me. And one just was like, I want you to win a national, you can win a national title, you know, division three, you can do it. And I want to you know, help you with that. And, and so let's make your goals, get into medical school, get the grades and the sco- and the test scores that you need to get to do that. But then let's also try to win a national um, and so those were my two guiding goals and I had those written down and it got to the point where I put it kind of where your hand rests, you know, when you're typing and it got to the point where it, there was a hole in the index card from my hand scraping on it. So I had to, you know, periodically re, um, you know, type up or, or write the card and, and put the tape it down again. So it was kind of a, a, a really important thing. And I don't think, there's many players out there who did that. So, um, and I don't really also think that I'm particularly um, special in any way in terms of athletics. I think I'm a decent athlete, uh, but I've seen what's out there and there's definitely people who are faster and stronger and better and everything at the game. So for me to have actually made it to the finals and then won it, um, you know, I feel like it was because those goals were written down and because, and I did very well academically and, you know, could have gone to medical school if I wanted to. Right. So I did accomplish those goals and I think it was because they were written down and I saw them not just once a day, but throughout the day. And it did help me to make a lot of decisions um, and avoid certain distractions that are prevalent on uh, college campuses, as we know about. So it's not that I didn't party. I did, but I, I, was a little bit maybe smarter about that, and tried not to do it very much it wasn't It wasn't the main part of why I was in college. let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah I like that story, will because I guess on, on a couple of levels. Number one, Josh and I were talking the other day about helping players design systems of reminders, just because we as, a, as human beings we constantly need reminders of you know the person that we want to be you know or the mm-hmm. things that we would like to achieve. So I think that that's like a really good story to help others design those types of systems that, and, and your story shows how that, the power of that. The mm-hmm. second piece I wanted to ask you about though, was you mentioned you don't necessarily consider yourself like that, maybe great athlete, you're good athlete, right? So one of the aspects I think of mental toughness that we see in elite athletes is they have this Self belief this belief that there's something about them that distinguishes them from others. Now, for you mm-hmm. to become a, a division three national champion, there must have been something about you that helped distinguish you from your competition. What do you think that was?
2: Mm, I, I just I was a very competitive person. Uh, I think that was probably one of the things that what I did distinguish as you know being more than probably most. Uh, people that i would run across i kind of had a burning desire to win more than probably the other guy most of the time um that didn't come out very well as a junior um i didn't know how to control that side of my uh my character i guess or whatever you want to call it um so I kind of took that out on my racket. I took that out on the facility. I would take that if if I wasn't winning, it was just it would get it could get really ugly. Um, (laughs) So I look back and and I kind of laugh on that because, you know, it's almost it's a it's a an embarrassing laugh. You know, you're kind of like sheepish, you know, you just feel a little bit bad because you did all these things that Weren't great. Um, embarrassing to myself, to my family, to people who were there, anyone supporting me coming to watch. I was a good player, so I'd, I'd go far in tournaments and things. But, you know, uh, there could be a scene, you know, and um, it's it's just yeah, I think that was a distinct a distinguishing feature um, for me. That among, among, it's almost like a know, Jekyll and Hyde thing
0: there, right? It's almost like a positive and a negative, And you had to control that beast within you. But maybe just that level of desire was what
2: separated
0: you. Uh,
2: absolutely. And, and, it's, and it was kind of always there ever since I was very young. I always wanted, it, it, even on the playground, when we were playing touch football, I didn't want my team to lose, you know, um, and I was the quarterback because I had the best arm so I could throw the ball the farthest and and with the most control. So I was always playing quarterback and touch football when we we're playing recess. And I was always, come on, guys, you know, we got to do this. Let's make this play. Let's do this. And I would never get angry at my teammates for messing up. I would just always get mad at myself. I, I was always like, oh, Dave, don't worry about it. It's all good. You'll get the ball next time. You know, if I threw the Perfect one, and the guy missed missed it. I wasn't mad at that. If I didn't throw it right, that's when I would get pissed. You know, so I was always really hard at myself, and I was never like angry at my doubles partner. I was never angry at anybody else. It was just always an internal anger towards myself. Um, so that's a perfectionism that I had, and a competitive spirit that I had for me always to just be better and perfect at everything that i did um and when i was young i really wanted everyone to like me you know i thought it was really important everyone likes me um and so i would always get mad at myself if someone didn't like me it wasn't because you know what their issues it was my issue i was like i'm doing something wrong i need to you know and so i was always trying to like please everybody and it was really hard because you can't you know people to know Everyone's not going to like everybody. And it, so that maturity, and it, just took, it took time for me to kind of adjust to my personality and the intensity that I have because I've always had that energy and I still have it, as Josh knows from working with me. It's there, <laughs> you know, um, and it can come out. Uh, but I think I've learned to control it and I've learned to be a little bit more at peace with what it is and understand that when it gets out of control, it actually works against me and so it's better for me to stay cool, calm and collected than to get too fired up because I'm, I'm gonna go against you know, my, whatever my goal is that I'm trying to achieve. I'm, I'm hurting my chances of actually getting it. So um, I think that's what tempered it for me as I started to realize that uh, more and more and respect that. Yeah, very good.
1: So um, I think we'd love, love to, to learn some more about um, your time, time on tour. Um I think from from reading your Sacred Heart bio it said 13 years 13 years playing playing ITF and ATP tournaments um so would love to learn more about about that journey um some of the highs some of the lows I know it can certainly be a grind um so could you tell us a little bit more about that
2: Yeah I mean it's you you have to have a couple things you you know in place for that to happen in a in a in a great way but um ultimately what makes it really tough is that people are really gritty competitors out there. Um, when you're talking now, now I'm facing my, my equals, you know, in terms of competitiveness. Um, so and athleticism, um, and intelligence for the game. So shot selections and strategies and things like that is, so you're not really, it's hard. It's hard when you get to that level, there's a hundred Google, I tried to do a little research on this stuff, but, you know, the, Google estimates about 80 to hundred million people play tennis in the world, you know, just recreationally or whatever. But now you're talking about the top ICF has 15,000 players registered uh, for the IPIN. So, you know, when you're talking about the men's ICF registered, you're talking 15,000 people who want to play pro um, and are trying actively to do it because they've, spent their whole lives probably competing and training and going, and that's what their goal is. Um, and then only about 2,000 of those will ever win a world ranking. Um, so the percentages, it's just insane, the numbers. you know, uh, It's hard to fathom and really understand it. But when you get to 1,000 in the world today with 100 million people, you're talking about 0 you know, point zero, 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 one percent, you know, it's, it's a very small percentage of people. And all of those people are diehard competitors, super intense, super, you know, I mean, it's just like, shh, everything's crazy. So you've got to have all the things in a row. You, you can't miss anything. You have to be mentally tough, physically tough. You have to have the strokes you know, pretty much everywhere. Um, You have to have, you know, a good coach and you have to have hitting partners and a steady diet of tournaments and training and, you know, athletic training and physical strength training. And everything has to be like in place because if anything is out of place, you won't make it to the top hundred or to the top 50 or beyond where there's really like the payout positions. So if you want to make a career where you're earning money on that and can maybe even retire from that, you're going to need every single piece of the equation to be there and not one thing can miss. Um, so that's what I found out <laughs> the kind of the hard way, but um, it's still a great, it was still a great experience. And I still had so much fun and met so many people and traveled and I don't know how to put a price tag on the education that you get from doing that. So uh, it's just, it was just incredible, but it's very, very, very hard. And I wouldn't recommend, sometimes people ask me when, when, you know, should I go to pros or should I go to college? Um, And the question, the answer I think is, unless you're in like the top 10 junior in the world, you should go to college. (laughs) at 18 years old, if you're not in the top 10 in the world, you know, ITF junior rankings, go to get a, to go play college tennis. Um, And you'll get your degree. You'll train with some great people. You know, um, and then you can go try as long as you have a professional environment to go into. Don't go teach tennis at a club, earn the money, and then go play on the tour for three weeks and think that you're going to go out and beat people who are training every single day (laughs) without having to worry about, you know, teaching tennis to make money. So that's essentially what I what I think is is appropriate for like skipping college um, and also Federer and these guys, Nadal and Djokovic have shown now that you can play top tennis in your mid to late 30s. No problem. So if you're 22 and graduating, you still have 10, at least 10 good years, if not more. So get a degree. <laughs> Please get a degree. Um, it's a smart thing to do and use your tennis to get a scholarship, you know, and help offset the cost of that. You've done a lot of good work. See, now I'm just talking to those players, (laughs) the parents and those players who might be listening, you know, you've done a lot of good work. Don't sacrifice your education for a kind of a pipe dream. And I hate to say that, but it's true. It's really, really tough. Um, so let it wait until you graduate from college. Well, I think pro tennis, and, and you hit on this, Will,
0: it's, it's probably the toughest sport to, to, like you said, get that payout position. You know, maybe it's, I, you know. Super I, tough. It's yeah. I think of people who actually break even, it's uh, like you have to be 110 in the world. But even if you're at 110, you're not making retirement money. No,
2: you're <laughs> right? not. You're going to work something else, and you're going to need a degree after to get a job. So you may as well just do it. A lot of guys are trying to get degrees on on – tour so they're doing an online simultaneously which is not a bad idea you can do that you can yeah
0: and you've heard even yeah other even some of the top you're gonna pay for that
2: you're not going to be able to get a scholarship so if you use your tennis to help you go to a team and then like play for the team you're going to get a scholarship for that you're not going to get a scholarship to do virtual training or virtual courses in a virtual degree right and so let's even say, let's
0: say the number is as, as high as 110 people making money. I mean, that's two NFL
2: teams right there. Right. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> it's, you have it's, to understand too, these guys at the top have more expenses than other people because they're paying the coaches more. Yeah. They travel more. So, you know, the co- at futures, for instance, you can go to Turkey, you can go to, uh, uh Antalya Turkey and live there in the same resort for 20 weeks in a row they charge 50 euros or 60 euros a day all inclusive food courts access to practice courts and tournaments every week so you know i found that out later i found that little spot later that's that is a little gem a hidden gem cuz you know it's it's a mix of everybody's 300 guys and girls men and women coaches from all over it's a training ground that turkey has set up there it's an amazing setup you you know you don't have to go anywhere you don't have to buy flights in and out all the time once you go to the challenger level all that 20 weeks in a row stuff disappears you're going week to week and you have to fly between each tournament and atp and beyond right it's there's no like multiple tournaments in a row where you can stay in one place and not have to fly or between you know transport between so your costs go up as you go higher up and yeah the prize money goes up but your costs go up so it's it's so hard and to make it really to make money is top 50 in the world you know people say oh it's 100 no i think it's i think it's really 50 because those guys at 100 they have more expenses
0: so yeah and they're also not If you look at the profit margin, it's really low. But I just use that number just as a way to highlight how hard it is. And it's, you know, it's so many other sports. You can get guaranteed contracts and, you know, you can make money in smaller leagues. But I think your story, Will, and your story is similar to Eric Buterak's in a way. Both guys, both won the national championship. Both were out there for a while and just kind of working on on your games and so forth. But something you yeah. said in your story about the tour uh, prompted a thought to me because, you know, Josh and I, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about sports psychology and tennis is the idea that, you know, tennis is so mental. And you mentioned, you know, all right, I'm all on the tour now and everybody's got the same level of competitiveness. We're all about the same athletically. So, but not everybody's perfect, right? They, yeah, they're mentally tough, but they're not. There are issues okay. there probably. So I was there's, curious. There's you know, Everybody's got holes. Yeah. Everybody. So like from a mental perspective, would you say, what would you say were some of the more common mental toughness issues of, you know, in, the, in that part of the tour that you are playing?
2: Oh, just people who would lose their cool so fast. You know, there's people who just get, they break down they get so pissed off and, you know, they'll chuck their rackets or, you know, whatever. Um So, That's what I saw um, was probably the biggest thing. I mean, there are a couple of guys out there with, like, you know, broken wings is what I like to call it. You have a forehand wing and a backhand wing, and you might have one wing that's broken, and you can just kind of target it on that, um, and, you know, you're going to get through the match. But most guys don't have the broken wing syndrome, so, you know, you're going to have a mental battle, physical battle on your hands, and, you know, a little bit of luck, a little bit of whatever, and you just kind of get through. But um, as I played more matches, I started to get a little bit of the like effort attitude. And that allowed me to just chill out and, and go and take absorb the blows of a break of serve or loss of a set or an error at a really critical moment. And I started kind of being able to laugh at those things and, and let it just kind of roll off my back. Whereas before it was like it would just build and build and build until some t- an explosion, and it was it was pretty much done and there were players a lot of players out there who had that same issue, so um, that's really the key, I think, is to be able to be tough mentally at that high level, and that can distinguish you um, and separate you and it, you know there's a couple of guys out there who had extreme weapons, you know, like one hundred and forty plus mile an hour serves or just these insane ground strokes that were just crazy or like speed that was out and out of this world, you know, so they would have certain things that were just special, like really special. Um, and uh, that could carry them through. But for the most part, the mental toughness was the, and those guys who are like is and stuff. who have these 145 mentally. They can be really tough because they're like, I have a huge serve. Like you can't get it back. So I'm good. You know, it helps them become mentally tough because they are, they know that they have something that you can't handle no matter who you are. So if you don't have that super special talent to blow people off court with, you're going to need the mental toughness to be able to, you know, hang in there or differentiate. And Federer, he talks about that, you know, that he made his transformation earlier. He made it at 17, you know, 16, 17, 18. That's kind of like when he did it. And he went from being a racket-throwing, tennis brat, angry person to being cool, calm, and collected and just kind of going through the, you know, being professional about it and level-headed and taking the wins and the losses and just, you know, going through it. So, that didn't happen for me entirely until I was like 27, 28. um, But then by that time, it's a little too late, you know. So, it, it was... It's just one of those things. Now I can give that gift to other people because I know what it's like to go from super angry competitive land to positive, optimistic. I don't even have an angry bone in my body when I play anymore ever. It's just all fun. And I totally see what I did wrong. I know what I need to do and change and fix and adapt. And I work on focusing on the things that are in my control. And I know what those things, you know, that's the other part is like you need to know sometimes coaches say control the controllables great. That's, that's awesome. And it's true. Well, what are those things? So being able to know what the things are that are in your control is super important. Um, so that you can focus your energy, um, on that.
1: So, um, a lot of that, a lot of that hit home with me, especially, um, you know, we've had a lot of discussions about this, about, about controlling those, the controllables and what, what can be controlled. Um, a question I had is, uh, during, was there a moment um, during your, your pro career or during your career as a tennis player where you, um, where you sort of saw the difference or you realized the difference between you know, being really competitive and wanting to win and really what it, what it takes to, to be that great competitor?
2: Yeah, so I shared this story with you before. I was in Turkey, my now wife, girlfriend at the time, wife now, Galia was, she's an Olympic champion from 2008 in Beijing in fencing and random how we met in Turkey through a friend whatever that's, she was watching one of my matches it was one of the first times she ever watched me play, I was playing someone like 500 in the world and he had Dominic Herbody over there as his coach and I've got nobody except for her her right but she's great and i love her so it's fantastic she's not a great tennis coach in terms of the x's and the o's but she's an amazing tennis coach and she's just like an amazing coach because she taught me something that day to transform me um and that was so i played three sets you know, I think I won the first, lost the second, was up a break in the third, then lost the third. So it was kind of this like up and down match. And I was staying very calm up until I lost the second break, you know, in a row to then lose in the third set in hot summer conditions in Turkey against 500 in the world. Girlfriend, new girlfriend who I want to impress watching, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm, desperate for wins and matches and points and money and everything else. So it just kind of like blew up at the end and I started not even blowing up. I didn't throw a racket or anything. I just was muttering to myself constantly. You know, when you get that conversation going out loud and you start talking to yourself, um, it happens in tennis. People who play tennis know, know, you know what that's like to talk to yourself out loud and any from outside coming in and watching would be like, what is this psycho person doing? But tennis makes that happen for some reason. And, um, and probably cause you're out there alone for such a long time and you're not allowed coaches. So you can't talk to anybody, but, um, so you start talking to yourself out loud. And so that's what I was doing. And she was sitting there hearing this. And after the match, I lose, you know, and it's all in the center court and there's a lot of people there watching and it was just, you know, good atmosphere and everything else, chair umpire and all that stuff. And, you know, everyone's, uh, the guy I was playing was, I think, Turkish. So, You know that's why everyone was there because it was in turkey and they're all supporting him and they can't believe he came back to win and beats the american and everything else so uh you know they're all clapping and it's great whatever good good atmosphere i was pissed that i lost but whatever so then i walk off and i go see her and i'm expecting her to be like oh that was insane it was like three and a half hours in the heat how did you even like you know do that and this and that and she just goes you know you're very competitive, but you're not a good competitor. And I am going to go to the beach. <laughs> and she just like, could it, it was just, she's, you know, Ukrainian there. She's got that Eastern European just directness. And she just came at me with that. And I just remember just sitting there being like, Oh my God, you know, um, that for some reason, tr- like the light went off and I realized, um, what I was doing wrong. And ever since that moment, it just became more and more clear in all sorts of different areas of my life, but um, you know, needed to kind of control the competitive spirit and just being competitive didn't equate to, you know, being a great competitor or knowing how to compete or whatever. And coaches had said this to me many, many times, you know, Stan and Brian and Paul and everybody who I'd come across, they always, you know, would say that stuff to me. It just for whatever reason it just didn't click click you know it, it would help and i would kind of get tools and help me kind of contain it and you know that kind of stuff but it was not it didn't get rid of it you know it was not the pulling the root out it was trimming it or keeping it at bay but it wasn't actually getting rid of the monster and so that's what that moment did for me is it, it really just got rid of it completely and i started to say no, I really do want to be a great competitor, and I want to know what that means. And so I started talking to her about that, and you know she explained to me, you know all this stuff and just no, you just got to focus in on your strategy and the things that are in your control and all this stuff. and it just made total sense and and then I just I've been doing that ever since, and helping players understand that too. Um, you know, when I meet players like on my team who maybe struggle, we won't name names, but Players who did struggle on the team with that stuff, I was able to sit them down and have that conversation and say, Look, you know, I understand that you're competitive and that's awesome because you need that drive if you want to really reach high levels of anything. You need you need drive and motivation, but you're gonna work against yourself and you're not gonna be accelerating and firing on all cylinders and running up the mountain um, as fast as you could be if you're not competing at the highest level, compete like a champion, compete like a legend. These people are unbelievable at competing and they're channeling their energy in the right direction. So that's kind of the conversation that I have. And then they start to understand what that means. And then it starts to click and you know, they, they regress and it's like a stock market, You know, they have their good moments and bad. But in general, it starts to really accelerate their development, so it's cool. I think the hard part about tennis, and
0: Josh and I were talking about this another day was um you know, tennis sort of tricks you into being competitive about the wrong things not maybe the wrong things but about things that ultimately are not as important as other things and you just kind of mentioned that like you have to know what's important you have to know what to be competitive about it's right. one thing to be competitive about points it's another thing to be competitive about understanding how one wins the match and i think that's when you make that transition from Yes, I'm competitive too. I'm actually someone who knows what's important and how to, act, you know, get myself from point A to B successfully. And mm-hmm. so, I'm, I'm glad to hear that's what you're bringing to your college coaching, Will, because I think that that's something that gets missed along the way. And, and like you said, maybe you just need to be ready to hear it, you know. And when your girlfriend told you that, you were just—it was the right moment. To yeah. hear it. And, and I think there are certain aspects of that that we all go through in our lives that, um, like you the said, you've heard it before. Yeah. You the know, defining and, moment. <laughs> and then, there's, then there's, it just hits at, at a certain point. Um, I'd like to hear more now that you're in the college coaching game. You know, what's your philosophy about coaching men and women at the college level? How do you, how are you trying to build, say, a culture of excellence at Sacred Heart?
2: Yeah, um, I think it uh, ties a lot back to that channeling of the competitive spirit and focusing on the things that are in your control because once you kind of get that, then you can translate that formula to everything else in your life. So you're basically setting a goal of trying to become a great tennis player and then going about that. How do you go about that? Um, and you know, how do you control your energy and and, and identify the areas? So um, I kind of talked to them about um, the three things that are in your control, in my opinion, these are the three things and, you know, other people can, you can, this is a debate, I guess, but I think it's everything that's inside of, you know, outside of your skin, out of your control. So we start there and, um, physical. So, you know, your physical intensity, that's in your control. So, uh, how fast I move my feet, how well I watch the ball, how, you know, maybe I'm moving my feet too fast and just slow down. So I can be too intense or not intense enough. And that's sort of in your control. And then uh, I go over to the mental world and I kind of put it into two boxes, and the one is the strategy box. And so, you know, what's my plan? What are the things that are in my way? How do I overcome? What's the easiest pass through here? I mean that's so that's strategizing and problem solving and identifying and you know and finding solutions and, and being a little bit creative and you know also understanding your strengths and weaknesses against the strengths and weaknesses of the situation that you're facing. And so tying those things up, you know, and aligning those things up in the right way. So that's kind of the strategy part. Um, and then there's the attitude part and, um, you know, be confident, believe in yourself, be respectful, um, you know, of, of everything, fear, nothing, uh, respect all fear, none, you know, the attitude is really important comp- having good sportsmanship Um, And then just having this constant uh, positive attitude and saying, you know, I can do this. Let's go. You can do it. Come on. Here we go. Let's go. So if you keep telling yourself, like, it's okay, I got this. I can do this. I'm going to find a way to get into the zone. I'm going to find a way through this to overcome this. It'll give you the best chance for success. That doesn't mean you'll be successful. You may not. And you may lose. But at least you set yourself up for the success as the best you could, and that way you'll have no regret at the end of it because you'll look back and say, Hey, I did my best. I did like everything in my control. I tried to control it to the best of my ability. I was aware of all those things and I did my best with what it is. Now let's look back and analyze what happened and where I went wrong or where the room for improvement is. And then I'll try to work on those things going forward And where's the low hanging fruit? I don't necessarily need to work. Am I, you know, on the run left, like opposite hand, I don't know, like some fancy shot because that's not, maybe I lost one point in the match because of it, but that wasn't, that's not something I want to spend a majority of my time going forward. So, you know, how do we practice? We practice hard. We also practice smart, you know, so it's, it's kind of all of that stuff. And so that's what I kind of just try is is in terms of philosophy the best version of yourself learn how to channel your energy and compete like a champion and be just a positive influence on yourself and on everyone around and boost everybody and just try to help people and identify problems that's good Uh, but just all that even better is to identify solutions or come up with solutions or suggest solutions and you know don't ignore the things that are out of your control because they can impact you so you know, the wind is out of your control. It definitely can impact you, identify the wind, understand what the wind is doing and say, Oh, the wind's blowing across the court. Let me, let me adjust my targets over there or whatever. Um, you know, so you can adjust and adapt for things that are out of your control. Son, the opponent being unruly or disrespectful, the officials making calls that aren't, pro, you know, what you agree with. Your coach is yelling at you from the sideline about something that maybe, you don't know, like, the, you know, officials in the stand or the fans, the spectators, your parents are coming, they're putting all sorts of pressure on you. Who knows? There's a million things in the tennis world that are out of your control. And then you just, once you start kind of reining all that stuff in, then all of a sudden you just become kind of the the master of your own destiny. And, um, you know, you're feeling that power, that empowerment and that confidence that you really have the the formula, you know, um, for success. And for a life of no regret Um, and you're giving yourself that best chance to achieve whatever goals you ultimately have. Uh, And so that's kind of what my goal is, I guess, um, is to create a culture of excellence, teamwork, inspire them to believe more in themselves and what they're capable of doing and teach them that formula that I think is super important for success in life, regardless of whether it's tennis or otherwise so it's just it's way more than just the that's the thing it just became way more about the development of them as people as opposed to um their tennis but it's funny because they both help you know if you become a better person you'll become a better tennis player you know um so like nick curios i think that guy could become a multiple grand slam title he could be number one in the world um if he just developed his character up a little bit you know i mean he's he's Funny guy, great guy. I don't know him personally. It just seems like he's got a little bit of stuff to work on um, in terms of his character out on the court. I know it's entertaining for a lot of people, so maybe he's playing up to it. I don't know him, so I can't speak to it. Maybe he's intentionally doing this for marketing reasons or whatever else. I don't know. So maybe he is already at his max. But if he is genuinely like getting pissed off and he's genuinely getting distracted by all these other things... Imagine what could happen if that guy's got kind of that tunnel vision, that that laser focus that an Adal and a Djokovic and a Federer are, do have. I mean, with the athleticism and the tools that he has, I mean, he he could become, I think, way better. But um, someone would have to sit him down and have an honest conversation like that. And then he'd have to be receptive and listening to. So that's not easy. <laughs>
0: no. Well, you it's know. interesting with him is uh... – his response to COVID-19 in the tour has probably been one of the better responses of the top players, uh, the most responsible ones. So maybe, maybe there's some hope for Nick Kyrgios.
2: I, I, I'm sure there's a ton. He's got, he's got everything he needs. So I'm not, we're not, nobody's worried about Nick Kyrgios. I think he's going to do, he's already done just fine, but uh, I'm just saying there's more, Oh, think- absolutely. There's more runway for him, for
0: sure, right? And, and, and I agree. And I guess I was just bringing up, maybe he is developing his character and maybe we
2: will see a bump, sort of maybe post-coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, another, player, of another player who was like this, Coco Vangaway, you know, she was, I was training with her in LA, we play practice and she smashed smash her racket into bits. I mean, I have one of them and I made her sign it because I knew I was playing with someone who could hit a ball bigger than any woman i'd ever seen hit and i played with justine Hennan and you know a lot of these tour girls as a hitting partner at the u.s open and pilot pangora so i was like wow this girl can crush the ball and i mean i struggled to beat her you know and um i was like this girl's a grand slam champion like she's she could be a grand slam champion i don't see why she's not number, she could be number one you know um, but I just could tell it was because you get so angry and I could, I related, I was like, I get you hundred percent, you know? So, um, when I had my breakthrough, I was like, man, I want to go like, tell her to like calm down, you know, but it's hard because you, you know, I'm not her coach. So it's like, you can't really break those. Uh, there's kind of like the borders there, you know, you don't want to boundaries and you want to be respectful. But I think she probably knows that now I think she made a good run you know, to the semis, the Aussie. And I think it was because she was able to dial things in a little bit more and rain that kind of, that, that, uh, aggression, you know? Um, so maybe she's starting to like figure it out too. I don't know. I haven't had a conversation with her in a couple of years, but, um, be fun too.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> if she's listening to this, I'm just, I, I'd love to go to Chipotle anytime, get the double chicken, double guac. Cause if we know that's our favorite.
1: <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Um, so we've we've spoken uh, actually recently, Brian and I um, about the the challenge. Going going back to, to mindset a little bit um, about the the challenge mindset and being able to see things um, on the tennis court and really in other areas of life um, as a challenge or as an opportunity rather rather than a threat. And I know um, that's at, good, Yeah, at Sacred Heart, we we've you know that that's a big part of of, of the program and really the the culture there. Um, yep. Can you talk about that a little bit and uh, how, how how you came to that realization and how you tried to, to build that into the program?
2: Honestly, uh, I don't know the quote, but you know, when they say like great writers steal from others or whatever that thing is. Yeah. So I stole that from a uh, TEDx talk that I watched and it was um, uh, an, I, an IMG TEDx and a guy was giving a presentation to the IMG athletes. He was a Navy SEAL and he gave them the, the, the C or T concept, which I guess they teach the Navy SEALs, which, which would make sense because they're constantly facing challenges. Um, so C or T is challenge versus threat. And if you perceive, you can perceive everything in life as either a, a challenge or a threat. Um, so, The extreme example is you're swimming out in the ocean and and a shark fin is coming at you, great white shark, jaws, whatever, coming at you. And uh, you perceive that. I think most people would perceive that as a threat and immediately just kind of curl up in fear and probably turn into the sharks, you know, lunch or whatever. Um, And so what they train the seals to do is to rise to the challenge and say, all right, you know, what do you need to do right now? What, you know, what's the smart thing to do? If a shark is charging at you, well, what's the weak point? Punch it in its nose, right? So they kind of say like, okay, if you're faced with a challenge, you kind of typically will rise to it um, because you'll kind of look at it differently and you'll say, okay, where's the weak point? How do I overcome? What do I need to do? And so in that situation, their training is to like face the thing and like punch it in the nose as hard as they can. It gives them the best chance to survive the situation, the encounter with the shark, And if they still get eaten, whatever they get eaten, but at least they didn't just shrink in fear, you know? So that's, when I heard that, I was like, oh my God, that makes total sense. And we should be applying that to like everything in life. So whether it's public speaking, uh, whether it's a zoom interview, whether it's whatever it is that might make you nervous, you just go like, I'm going to rise to the challenge of whatever this is, you know, and uh, instead of treating it as being a, a threat and then I'm going to be living in fear. So I end up having a better result whenever I do that. And, uh, even if it's not, even if this interview isn't perfect, you know, it's better than if I were to be nervous and, and, uh, scared and cower, you know, so that's kind of how I I started to look at everything. Um, and that's definitely, that's a great thing that you pointed out because, uh, it is something that we talk about a lot and, and hopefully they get the concept of CRT and, um, it's easy for them because we're in Connecticut. So CT, Connecticut, I try to <laughs> reinforce that also. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, I think also
0: your players, even as you bring them in as freshmen, will, eh, you know, maybe it just takes some time, you know, in uh, some of the programs I've worked with. Uh, sometimes it's not until the junior year that like somebody will come up to me and say, all right, I, f- I finally get that thing you talked about oh, sure. two years ago. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's just that constant, repeating of these things and I think that's a great great message and it's great for your players that they're hearing that from you and and getting to go out and try it because tennis uh, there's a lot of perceived threats
2: out there always you know you have a break point big point set point match point Um, you know in your favor or against you can be nervous about needing to close it out or you can be nervous about not losing I mean you know uh, either way, so you can look at that as I'm going to rise to the challenge right now, and I'm going to watch this ball. I'm going to put it right in the center of the strings, and I'm going to align my string to the target, and I'm going to be there, and I'm going to make the shot right now. And that gives you the best chance. I mean, it might not happen, but
0: it will give you the best chance. So, yeah, that, and that's I think the really important message is you're giving yourself the best chance. We, you said earlier, it doesn't guarantee success, but you are giving yourself a chance at success where. Very often, the opposite way, you're pretty much guaranteeing
2: no success. Pretty much guaranteed, none. Pretty much. Yep. I mean, in either case, you have luck on your side, and but I like luck plus yes, <laughs> chances, best chances. You know, not just luck for sure.
1: Um, so, uh, as we start start to wrap this up. Um, you know, one one question that, that comes to my mind is um, during during these times that we're living in certainly unprecedented times um, with COVID and everything, and obviously this has uh, an impact on on college athletics. Um, so, what are you as as the the next school year starts? What are you um, envisioning uh, a, as far as uh, college tennis program, and what are what are some of the main things that um, you'll be focused on in terms of you know mindset and Helping to keep the, the team mentally tough during during this challenging situation.
2: I think it's the same thing. Like we, we want to be rising to the challenges that we face. So let's look at this as a challenge. Just figure out the best way we can uh, make do with the resources that we have available. Let's go with the flow um, and be adaptive and ready for whatever is coming. Um, let's hope for the best and let's be prepared for the worst. Um, it's kind of my boy, I was a boy scout growing up. So be prepared, you know, the boy scout honor, be prepared. Right. So that's kind of what it is. And, um, I think, you know, if you can flow like water, uh, that's better, <laughs> you know? So that's kind of what we're trying to do. And, you know, yeah, it's very difficult times. People are, you know, uh, dying literally. So, uh, we just have to be grateful for whatever it is that we have. And from our health or to having an opportunity to study uh, either on the campus or virtually, there's a lot of people who don't even have a chance to get an education because they can't afford to because their families have been so negatively impacted by this that they can't even afford to have a college education anymore. You know, So in any form in which this education comes, whether it's virtually or in, cl- or in class or whatever it is, you know, just be appreciative of that. And then, uh, you know, that you're healthy, that's huge. Um, and then your happiness is your, that's your, your responsibility. Everybody needs to take care of their own happiness. It's a decision. A lot of times people empower things that are external to them and allow for other people to control their happiness. Um, and that's a huge mistake. Don't give other people the power over you and your emotions. Just, uh, you know, uh, realize that you are in control of your happiness and, and it's not, I mean, it's very easy to say, very hard to do in, in practice, honestly. Uh, you know, you, there's a girl that you really w- hope likes you and you want her to like you. And then you you, you, you know, and then she doesn't like you. And, you know, that can really be tough and can bring you down, but you can't let that get you down. You just got to realize that she's not the right one in this moment in time. And that, that's probably for the, the good, you know, and that's, that's all right. Move to the ne- next Whatever, you know, so it's just kind of like those things, you know, um, that that I think uh, are really important, especially now to stay like super positive and look for the good. Look for the silver lining. Keep trying to remind yourself of the things that you have that are good and positive in your life. And, uh, you know, and obviously we always hope for more and hope for the better, but just be OK and, and fine and accepting of what it is. And, and then move on day by day. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: Will, I think um, that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed that. I think you dropped a lot of pearls of wisdom throughout that, so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to going through the, the transcript here <laughs> and, uh, and pulling some stuff out for our listeners. So we appreciate you oh. coming on today.
2: No, it sounds, sounds good. and you know, thanks a lot for having me and the opportunity to share my story and some of the experience I've had. And, you know, I can thank a lot of people for everything. Um, You know, obviously my family and my friends, but also the coaches and the mentors I've had along the way have all been helpful in, in the version that I am today. Right. And and it's just continually evolving. I I really pride myself on trying to become a new version of myself all the time. I don't want to stay the same. I think that's, that's probably moving backwards in a lot of ways, so I'm always trying to figure out how to improve and and make myself better and and uh so I thank all the people who helped me do that, whether it's identifying my weaknesses or telling me what I'm doing well or whatever that's all fantastic, and I always take it in a positive way so and Josh has been a great help for me too, and you know he had brought us. Is, uh one of the things, Josh, that I really liked was that you brought in the, pre- the importance of pressure in practice. And it was something that I always knew was important. But you had come with some scientific kind of evidence of it. And, you know, and with a master's degree and, and, a, and a thesis on it, um, you know, we were able to kind of definitively, um, you know, push that or impose, you know, impose that on the, on the teams and uh, they were able to embrace it, you know, um, and I think they respected that. So that was a really, really big thing. Um, and that's just one of many things that you've done and, and I appreciate it so much. So um, anyway, I love what you guys are doing. It's a great thing. And I hope I added this much value to it.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. That was, uh, first of all, I really, really enjoyed the, the conversation um, and, and the, the kind words as well. I mean, my, you know, coming from my, my sports psychology master's program and my thesis about um, learning more about mental toughness in college tennis and interviewing um, 11 college coaches and really learning how many of them had incorporated pressure into practice, high pressure environments, changing up the score, utilizing more match play, which I know Brian and I have talked about as well, um, just that importance of, of match play. And I really felt that, you know, over those last two years, we, we were able to um, add in that added piece of competing more and getting used to pressure in practice so that when you face it in a, in a match, in a, um, in a, in a big moment, you, it's like, you've been there time and time again, because you've practiced in that, in that situation. So, right. We,
2: we, as the coaches have to be the bad guys at first, because they feel like, wait, why are you telling me that I have to do 10 burpees if I miss the serve? You know, they're like, come on, man, that's a little too much. And you're like, well, because I know it's going to be good for you later when you're facing a break point, you know, and we've done this a million times in practice and you've figured out how to ignore me and block that out and just go for the serve because you figured out that's actually going to help you not have to do those burpees by not thinking about that because um, that's ultimately what it's boiling down to is that you're, you're thinking about the result and the consequence of that result. As opposed to just being in the moment and executing as you know you need to. So yep. That's that was a big thing.
0: And at the very least, the ten burpees will get you in good shape for those long matches.
2: Exactly. At least you're going to be strong. So right. it's all training good. opportunity. It's all, <laughs> it's all good stuff. <laughs> that's right.
0: All right. Yeah. So uh, why don't we wrap it up there? So, Will, thanks again for Absolutely. for for joining us. That was really great, and um, I had a lot of fun. I look forward to following your career, and thank I know the great things are lie ahead for
2: you. Thanks, a lot. Thank you, I appreciate. it. I hope so, and just I'll just keep doing my best uh, to represent here for Sager Heart and uh, and the local community here. But thank you guys for the opportunity.
1: All right, Brian. Well, that was a, a great conversation, and uh, thank you to William. Um, for for joining us today on the Tennis IQ podcast, so Brian, what was a a main takeaway that you had from that conversation?
0: I think um, the story about the difference between being competitive and being a good competitor or a great competitor, and I think my takeaway there is it's um, sometimes people's definitions of being competitive are either faulty or they're competitive about the wrong things, and I think that that is really what you know, um, William's girlfriend at the time, now wife, was trying to make that point is that, yes, he is competitive in a way, but he's competitive about the wrong things. And he doesn't, he wasn't keeping the right things in mind in order to be really successful. And if you're going to be a great competitor, you have to know what's really important. You have to know what matters when you're trying to win something or win a competition. And if you don't, you know, know what matters. So in in tennis, I think it's, we get competitive, maybe too much about points. Maybe we're too competitive with the other guy or the other, other, just the other player, right? Trying to be better than somebody rather than being the best we could be. Um, So I think there are are multiple layers uh, for people to figure out how can you become a great competitor? Because I hear it, and I'm sure you do all the time, Josh, you know, so-and-so, or I'm so competitive. And I listen to that. I'm like, ah, okay. But I'd really like to hear what your definition of competitive is because I think it might actually be getting in your way. And I think that that was really the moral of the story was that William's sense of being competitive was a little bit getting in the way of him being a great competitor and being more successful as a player.
1: Absolutely, and I think uh, I think a, an important point that he touched on was that that competitive spirit that he had really from a young age uh, lifted him and, and helped him be a successful junior, highly successful college player as well. But when he reached the professional level, and everybody is really competitive, you have to be doing all the right things to be a great competitor. And the w- the way that he broke it down from um, the your physical intensity your strategy your attitude so making sure that all of those pieces are in place and that you're really controlling those things that controlling the controllables controlling whatever can be controlled rather than you know letting your personal rivalry with the other player get in the way or your ego or whatever it may be get in the way but really just controlling those things makes you the best possible competitor you can be so i think i think that was a definitely an important theme there um, well, thank you everybody for tuning in today to the Tennis IQ podcast. Just as a reminder, please make sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. This is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, as well as all major podcast platforms. You can also subscribe on our YouTube channel, uh, Tennis IQ Podcast, and make sure to also use the uh, the hashtag Tennis IQ on Twitter. And if you have any questions about the mental side of, of tennis or mental side of sports, any topics you'd like us to address in future episodes, or just, or just any um, notes or any feedback about our episodes, you can send us an email at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again to William for joining us, and thanks for tuning in to the Tennis IQ Podcast.